Please flip to Acts 21. Yes, I have the whiteboard up here. Uh, I am a teacher, after all. That's what I do. You can keep the teacher out of the classroom, but you can't keep the classroom. Uh, that doesn't work. My point is, I've made it a long time without using the whiteboard, so here it is. Uh, all right. <laughs> We're going to have some excitement about that. I'm gonna... All right, last time I spoke, uh, we were talking about Paul's journey to Jerusalem. And in a lot of ways, this is the climax of Acts. It's been building to this. My experience is that a lot of us are very familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and less familiar with Acts. But what's going on here is very important in the life of the church. It's a, it's a pinnacle moment. And we're going to cover a, a big chunk of it. So if you do have your Bibles, please have it out so you can follow along with me. We're going to be starting in Acts 21, verse 17. And to set it up briefly, Paul is coming into Jerusalem, and he represents the Gentile Christians in a lot of ways, the non-Jewish Christian community. And in Jerusalem, he's going to meet James, who represents the Jewish Christian community. And there could be the potential for serious tension there, but there's also a chance for something really beautiful to happen. And we actually see both take place in today's passage. So we're going to read a big chunk. Let's go from 21.17 to 40, please. Stay locked in, and let's do this. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there's nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. 
Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and there was a great hush, and he addressed them in the Hebrew language. Let's pray together that God would bless the reading of today's word. Father, thank you for your scripture. Thank you that it is true, it is good, it is for our benefit, it is meant to draw us close to you. In it we find challenge and encouragement, and they both come from a place of love. May we, we, may we be receptive to that today. Amen. So most of you, many of you, have read a great deal of the works by Clive Staple Lewis, C.S. Lewis. I love his middle name is Staples. Uh, it cracks me up a little bit. Maybe some of you have Staples. It's a great name. I'm just saying it's not what I think of when I think C.S. Lewis. Uh, but he's most well known for writing uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Chronicles of Narnia. I've been reading through those with my kids, and it's been just an awesome experience. Uh, but his writings of Christianity are also famous, significant, profound. Lewis had such a brilliant mind and a gift for stating profound truths in a pithy, catchy way that it is honestly a preacherly challenge not to quote him every sermon. You'll come up with that one quote, and you're like, I gotta find somebody else who says this, because just the Lewis bombs. C.S. Lewis's route to Christianity, however, was, was pretty long and interesting. The main part of his journey concerned the arts. He can look back and think about the times as a child he ran into this particular piece of music or a poem or a book that felt to him like not like it was news from another country, that's how he put it. Like he was hearing echoes from a far country. It wasn't fiction, it felt to him. These encounters had the effects of a gentle tug on his heart that would follow him his whole life. So he was eventually a professor at Oxford and had the fortune of having several friends, one of whom was, of course, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And there's a famous conversation between C.S. Lewis and two of his colleagues, one of them, Tolkien, when they, they spoke until 3 a.m., they stayed up all night talking, and in them, Lewis is telling Tolkien that I love all these myths and these stories that I read and teach, but ultimately they're just lies breathed through silver. They, they have no meaning. They seem like they're full of significance, but they're not. Tolkien disagreed and told him, the myths and the stories that you love are not lies breathed through silver, but they have a kernel of truth to them. The stories C.S. Lewis loved, according to Tolkien, were not just sandcastles built waiting to be washed away, but they were a building and pointing towards something else. They were substantive. They were communicating truths about the world. A few days later, after that conversation, Lewis converted, and the rest is history. Tolkien actually wrote a really 
interesting poem about that conversation. You should go look it up. Well, Lewis wrote brilliant literature for many years, and for many of you, his works have done the same thing in your life that those famous authors did for him. They've been beacons and guiding ways, and I don't think anybody ever gets too old for the Chronicles of Narnia. You should go back and read them. Well, just recently I got a newsletter from a pastor in the city, John Tyson, who was talking about uh, C.S. Lewis's secretary, Walter Hooper. Now, Walter Hooper was able to observe C.S. Lewis from when he was uh, not a believing professor to his conversion. And when somebody asked Walter Hooper, get us behind the scenes, what was C.S. Lewis like? He had this one sentence to say about him. He was the most thoroughly converted man I ever met. He was the most thoroughly converted man I ever met. I wonder when you picture that phrase, if someone said, your neighbor's the most thoroughly converted person you've ever met, what do you picture? What does that mean? Do you, is it negative even? You know, you picture like a fanatic. Uh, is it condescending? Is it something positive? Are you a little nervous potentially about meeting someone described in that way? the most thoroughly converted person we've ever met. I suspect if we're honest with ourselves, most of us deep down don't really want to be thoroughly converted. We want to be a little converted, is my feeling. When we look at the pie chart, you know, a good 20 to 25% converted feels right. Just enough to help us through times of trouble, give us some community, but it's going to keep us from looking really weird. Well, in today's passage, we take a look at what Paul has become, and he has become thoroughly converted. And I'm going to argue, I want to say that the thorough conversion is what's best for us because it's an invitation to the best one for us, who is Jesus. I kind of have three main points that I'm going to interweave because we're doing a lot of history. You know, it's, I could do something artificial and really try to make it fit, but I'm not going to. I want us to make some observations as we're going that a thorough conversion frees us from direct relationships. I'll explain that in a minute. That's the whiteboard. Uh, a thorough conversion frees us to love and serve, and a thorough conversion frees us to be with Christ. So, let's start here. Thorough conversion frees us from, the, from direct relationships. When we open up, we have this meeting between Paul and James, and I cannot state for you the importance of this strongly enough. If the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and the Gentile Christians outside of it cannot come together, it could permanently damage the integrity of the gospel. Paul knows this. He's been preparing for this for a long time. If you've read any of his letters, you may have noticed occasionally he'll say this thing about, I'm gathering a big offering for the Christians in Jerusalem. Everywhere he went, he would take up money from the Gentile churches so that for this meeting, when he came, he could bring all this money and say, look, we are one and the churches are in support of you. We are, we are unified. That was a very tactical play from Paul. This, has been, this meeting has been sitting on him for a long time. So Paul mentioned, spent much of his ministry gathering this money because he wants a show of solidarity. There are not two churches. There is one. Now, why is this so important? A big part of it concerns a mistake that I see a lot, to be honest. I kind of grew up hearing this, I think. It goes like this. Some people have a tendency to say, and if, if you fall in this camp, I understand, I, I've seen, but let me gently push you away from this. Some people say, in the Old Testament, everybody tried really hard to earn God's love. They worked really hard, but they failed. But then the New Testament came, Jesus showed up, and we're all saved by grace. 
I could see why people would be led down to that type of thinking, but I'd like to suggest that this is a dangerous way to think about the Bible, and it's not the correct approach, and I want to say a couple things about it. The first danger of thinking that way, that the Old Testament, everybody just tried to work really hard to become uh, you know, believers in God, and it didn't work, and now the New Testament is defined only by grace, is that it essentially allows you to throw away the Old Testament. Because you can go, well, the Old Testament was kind of this failed thing, and here's the New Testament. Who needs it? The New Testament is the right one. The problem here, of course, is that all of Scripture has been given for our edification, even the Old Testament, even some of the weird stuff. There's weird stuff in the New Testament, too. God speaks through the Old and New Testament. And if you listen to Jesus, how does he talk about the Old Testament? He quotes it incessantly. It has authority over his life. He is well studied in it. So, does Jesus believe it is true and authoritative? Yes. And if we call him Lord, we should do the same. Secondly, if you think the Old Testament is like when people tried to earn God's love but failed, it leads to some odd thinking about Old Testament figures like, other questions like, was King David really someone who loved God and stuff like that? That would be King David, a man after God's own heart. Figures in the Old Testament had real, serious, and saving interactions with the real, saving God, and we have no right to undercut their faith. Thirdly, it can and has led to some anti-Semitism. There could be a kind of, the Jewish people back in the Old Testament messed up, you know, we got it. Scriptures make it pretty clear. We're not to look at Adam and Eve and the Israelites wandering in the desert and go, well, if that was me, I wouldn't have messed up. We're supposed to look back and go, wow, even with all the blessings, the provision they received, they blew it, I would too. Remember what Jesus says to the woman at the well in John. She says salvation is from the Jews. If you do not have Jewish heritage, you should be grateful that through Christ, we've been grafted into the same story. That's really awesome. But even outside of all those dangers, the biggest one, and the one that's being answered right here, Jesus is not the counterpoint to the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus is not the counterpoint to the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment. The laws and the temple were all pointing towards Jesus. When sacrifices were made, they were in hope of one true sacrifice that would come through Christ. They were a way of confessing faith. The temples, the temple, the laws, they were like the stories in C.S. Lewis's life, pointing towards the true fulfillment in Christ. And this is what's at stake when Paul and James come together. Is Jesus adversarial to the Old Testament, to Jewish religious tradition? Is Jesus against the patriarchs and the prophets and the kings? Or is there something else going on? Paul and James know the truth. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So Paul meets with James and the Jewish Christians and tell them what God has been doing with the Gentiles. And this is a scary moment. And you can imagine, Paul stands up and he lays out the whole story. And you would expect, like, the pregnant pause. And maybe eyes go to James. What is James going to say about this, the leader of the church in Jerusalem? Well, there's no pregnant pause in the movie. In 21:19, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, and when they heard it, they glorified God, period. And there is rejoicing from the Christians in Jerusalem. They clearly see this also is part of God's mission. This is what it means. This is what Jesus' life and death have meant. It's no counterpoint. It's a fulfillment. We celebrate. 
Okay, so that, I want us to get that, that's huge. Then we get to this little interesting moment, and it's easy just to blast by it, but I want to sit on it for a second. So then they ask them, the Christians of Jerusalem say, listen, a lot of people think you're against the law, and uh, against the traditions and all this, and it would be really helpful, we think, if you submitted yourself to some purification rites so that you could show to them you respect the law. Now, this is an interesting moment. Paul agrees to it. And you might initially go, is Paul lying? Because he spent a lot of time saying, in Christ, I'm free now. I don't, I don't owe a debt to the law in this way. There's a new thing coming. That's Jesus. Is Paul lying? Is he pretending that he's under the law, the Jewish law, so that he uh, you know, can reach them? What's he doing? Is he being a coward? Should he just say, no way, man. Through Christ, I no longer submit to the law. Well, I want to say a few things. One... It's important to say right away, Paul and James agree on doctrine. They believe that salvation was by grace in Christ through faith. They agree on ethics. Christians must obey the moral law. The issue here is about culture, ceremony, and tradition. And James is saying, Paul, you will get a much bigger hearing if you submit to this culture, ceremony, and tradition. And when it comes to those things, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. He has a principle. He says this, for though I am free from all, though I'm free from all the commands anybody would make on my life but Christ, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some and I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Basically, when it comes to culture, Paul's like, I'll do whatever it takes for people to hear me and hear what I have to say about Jesus. When it, even though I'm free from cultural demands, I'll use that freedom to serve others. So to give an illustration of this, I grew up in a Baptist church where uh, drinking was prohibited and my dad disagreed with this, but he expressed this in an interesting way. I, I suppose my dad could have gone to the church cookout with a six-pack of course and put it down and been like, let's go, and they could have had a nice little showdown about that. He could have gone, look, in Christ I'm free, I'm going to drink what I want. But he didn't. He wouldn't lie about his position to anyone, but he also wouldn't do anything like that. As F.F. F. Bruce puts it, a truly emancipated spirit such as Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation. A truly free person is not in bondage to their freedom. My dad, because now he feels like he is free to drink alcohol, disagrees with the Baptist church there, was not now stuck in a position where he had to go fight everyone. And I recognize, you know, drinking can be a touchy subject due to alcoholism, but I think you understand what I'm trying to say. My dad had freedom, but he used it to serve people around him. And you know what's funny is at the same time, he lived differently kind of in front of us. He, he would occasionally drink in front of us as a point to say, I know our church disagrees with this, but this is actually how I feel about it. And I want you to see this. He used his freedom in different contexts to serve different groups of people. As Paul might have put it, he's not made use of this right, but endured anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. In Christ, we are free. 
And that freedom is to be used to serve others. Uh, some of us hear this and maybe go, well, you're free in Christ. Uh, okay, but isn't this kind of a cheat? Like, I'm free in Christ, but if I'm a forgiven, can't I just do what I want? Isn't this the opposite of freedom? I'm free in Christ, but now I, I just have to serve people? If this is your question, I'd like to humbly suggest that maybe you haven't quite trusted Christ when he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. This is only a trap if this way of living is not actually the best thing for you. But if the best thing for us is to follow Christ in loving others, this is an invitation and not a trap. You are free to do the best thing for you, which is follow Christ. Remember what Christ says, Come to me all who are weary and burdened, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's easy and light because every other yoke and burden eventually fails you. Christ does not. The way of Christ is the best thing for us. It is not a trap. In Christ, we are free. Uh, I had a, a friend who was in a particular industry. I can't, honestly, I can't remember if it was like banking or sales. Uh, I have family who are bankers, so I'm not insulting banking. This person had a moment when they walked by a desk, and on the desk was a little cube that said like 40 years of service. And there was something about that cube that my friend saw it and was like, just to just recognize that while it was so good this guy had done the work, that it probably didn't give back in the way that we all hope those things do. Eventually, those things don't reward us in the way that we hope. Only Christ does. All right, so whiteboard time. Let's go. Getting serious. All right, so what's this direct relationship thing I was talking about? Well, I'm stealing a bit from Bonhoeffer, okay? There's two parts to this, so hang with me. So let's put you in the middle. I'm not nuts about doing that, but hang with me. There's you, and you have these direct relationships with things in your life, um, family, uh, romantic relationships, work. Okay, so there's you, and you have these direct relationships with all of these things, and you really hope that these direct relationships, these strong things that you really invest in and you find your identity in will pay out in the end. Uh, and you lean on these things very heavily to define you and sustain you, but one day we die. And all of these lines fade. And basically, we're stripped away from that. And we stand before God truly as an individual. We come before God without our work, our tribe, our friends, our family, we come before God alone. Now, the Christian life is kind of a call to renounce these things before that moment. We die to ourselves. We carry our cross. What is Christ inviting us to do? He's inviting us to drop, and let me, let me flesh this out, to drop our direct relationships. And if you start thinking about the Bible, you'll notice how much God is putting weight on that. Abraham, I want you to show me you're willing to sacrifice Isaac. Joshua, I want you to approach Jericho, but not to fight. 
I want you just to walk around. No strength of the army. You're going to have to rely on me. Rich young ruler, I need you to give away your money. These direct relationships need to fade. You are called to die to yourself over and over again. Once you start looking for it, it's everywhere. This is what, just try to read Luke. It's like every two sentences Jesus is talking about this. In an interview on a program called Closer to Truth, there is a, this uh, financial guy travels around and he interviews people about different ways to get knowledge. And he interviews Sarah Coakley, who's a professor of divinity at Cambridge. And they go back and forth and they're talking about faith. And it ends, she says this. She's talking about prayer. She says, as a believer, I find that it is in a silent waiting on God that ultimate transcendent reality comes to me. Every time I do that, I think of it as a rehearsal for the moment when I finally have to give over control, which will be the moment when I die. And I think that rehearsing for death is actually one of the most important things we do as humans because once we're no longer afraid of death, then we're no longer afraid of life. And at this point, the... Uh, she directly addresses the interviewer. She says, you strike me as a person who's very interested in controlling what you believe because you're afraid of no longer being in charge, the captain of your soul. But when you come to think of it, there's going to come a day when you're lying in bed about to die and that possibility will no longer be a fantasy that you can maintain. The direct relationships will fade. Paul puts it this way. Whatever I gain, I had. I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Okay, but there's a second part of this that I think is really cool. It's not just that as Christians we just burn down all these connections. Something new actually happens. This is what Bonhoeffer would say. happens is Jesus mediates your relationship to all those things. You still have that relationship to your family, but you see it through the lens of Christ. You still have your relationship with your work and all that, but you see it through your relationship with Christ. And you'll notice this is the thorough conversion. Your money, you see it through the lens of Christ. What's happening here with Paul Paul was someone who valued very heavily. We're going to get into his testimony. It's all about, he believed, he had these direct relationships with the temple and with uh, his tribe and all of that. And what happened is he meets Jesus and Jesus changes all of it. He mediates his relationship to everything. And if you're looking at that and quickly you can think, yeah, I do think there are places I see through the lens of Christ and I think there are parts of my life where I don't then there's a challenge there. And I think the quick test, right? What do you get anxious about? What do you get anxious about? Is probably the place where we have have not brought Christ to mediate our relationship with that thing. Okay. So application here, Paul's thorough conversion has freed him from direct relationships and freed him to love and serve. And the application for us is simple. We shouldn't want to be a little converted. 
we shouldn't want to have a, uh, I'll let most of these, but this line stays unmediated. This line, it's just me and that thing. That's where I, uh, too far, God. I'm not going to let you touch my money or my work or this relationship or that. It all, it all has to stop there. No, the call is for a thorough conversion. It's the best way. Christ can be trusted with these things. It's real freedom that way. Okay, so the plan doesn't quite go the way Paul hoped. In the temple, at the time, there's this dividing wall. And it's a real thing, and there's a sign that says Gentiles can't go past this point. And it was such a big deal that the Romans said, listen, if anybody passes this wall who should not be there, we ourselves will execute them even if they're a Roman citizen. And so the Romans themselves said, we recognize the sacredness of this, and we will uphold it for you. So as Paul is hanging out with Gentiles who probably came with him, rumor gets out, which was not true, that he had led some of them past the wall. And this happens, right? 27. Uh, They cry out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people in the law. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple, has defiled this holy place. They drag him, they begin to beat him. Now you might think at this point, Paul has done his due diligence, man. He tried to submit to the law at points. He's put in his time. They're trying to kill him. Maybe it's time just to move on. But you know what Paul has in his head? As they have gathered him to beat him, He knows in his heart, that was me. I was them. I hated people like me too. And this moment should remind us, the first time we saw Paul, his name was Saul, and he was killing, he was the head of an execution of a man named Stephen, who was following after Jesus. Saul did the same thing. And so as he's rescued by the Romans, he turns and says, give me a chance to speak. We might go, Paul, that's crazy. Get out of there. But he sees himself out there. And he's like, I need a chance to tell them what I have learned. And when he turns to speak, and we can picture him, he's been beat already. He's pummeled. He's spitting blood. And he turns to speak, and you know what his first words are? His first words, look on chapter 22, is this small little line. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. It's a tiny, unique little line that just also happens to be almost exactly the same line Stephen said before he was killed. Paul knows he's forgiven by God, but he's a human. And you can imagine he's had long nights laying in bed thinking of Stephen and his role in the death of Stephen. And as he's been beat up and he's bleeding and bruised, he hasn't had time to sit down and write this thing out. The one thing he thinks of is Stephen's words. I've seen this before. The persecutor has become persecuted. He has come full circle. The man he condemned and hated, he's now praising by using his same words. And he tells this story, and what's it about? It's about a thorough conversion. It's about how his direct lines became mediated lines. It's a little bit longer. We're almost there. I know we've gone through a lot. Hang with me. I'm I'm just going to read what he says. 
Picture Paul on the steps. There's an angry crowd waiting to get at him, and he starts to speak. And it's worth noting that when he speaks in the original Hebrew, that would have caught people's attention. It was a way for him to say, I know what I'm talking about. I am peak-level educated here. Some of the people in the audience would not have been able to understand him. He is intentionally doing it the deepest possible cut to say, I am you, and listen to what I have to say. So 22. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From then I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and go out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So what does Paul do when he's brought before them? He takes them on the road to Damascus. He says, I am you and you are me, and this is what happened. I pursued after this, and Jesus himself stepped down to tell me that I am persecuting him. That his way is the true way. And now, for all of you, I, I give you the same opportunity. You are on the road of Damascus with me as well. This is your chance. He's not in a opposition. He is the fulfillment. See what's coming. And secondly, he's leaning into this truth. This God sent me to the Gentiles. He opened the gospel for everyone. I have been thoroughly converted. It's changed my relationship to everything but it's been changed by someone who's forgiving. After I killed Stephen, God could have, you know, destroyed me. Jesus could have crushed me on the spot, but he forgave me instead. I have been thoroughly converted by someone who loves his enemies 
and someone who loves you as well. And this is Paul's message to them, and this is Paul's message to us also. Well, in the very end, to wrap it up, things don't go well. Up to this word, they listened to him. They raised their voices, said, away with such a fellow. It's interesting. They hang with him until he mentions being sent to the Gentiles, and then they turn on him. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribute ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. If I end here, this seems like a tragedy. But see what's happened. The church has been unified. The Gentile church and the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, many of them have united. It's one church. Jesus is the fulfillment. Paul has had the opportunity to speak and proclaim the gospel to people like him. And you know what? When he killed Stephen, it was several days later that he was converted. Who knows, but that those words planted a seed that paid fruit in the future. And finally, this is the full trajectory for Paul. He's gone from persecuting the way to following it. And you know what happens in the end? When Stephen is about to die, we get this moment where he looks up and he sees Christ. He's present with Jesus. And after all of this, Paul is beat, gives the speech. They try to kill him again. He's almost flogged in the barracks that night. We have this little passage. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The same way that Stephen goes through this ordeal and looks up and he is with Christ, Christ is with Paul. Paul has been thoroughly converted and that is the way that Christ lies. So the application for us is simple. Uh, if you've not chosen to follow Christ, the road to Damascus calls us. Come be thoroughly converted. All the direct lines fade. One day we just stand before God, true individuals. They don't work. They don't play out the way we hope. Today, Christ is calling for you. He is the one thing that lasts. If you have chosen to follow Christ, Christ meets you like he meets Paul and says, take courage. The mediated life is the true path to life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the witness of Paul. Thank you for your story for us. Thank you that you are good, and what that means is we can die to self, and we can turn everything over to you, that our lives mediated by you is where true life is. It is scary, Father, but we are comforted because that is the way that you are on. Father, guide us closer to you. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.